I'd like you to open your Bible or navigate on your device to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Our text this morning will take us through verses 12 through 25. Always a blessing to be able to follow along in God's Word. And as I've been encouraging you for some weeks now, uh, it's, it's our understanding that since the Bible is alive and powerful, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, and since the Lord is here to minister and those of us that are Christians have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can expect the Lord to minister to us, uh, to hear from him this morning as we read the text for ourselves. Regardless of my commentary, the Lord has his commentary for your heart. John 2, verses 12 through 25, the topic, Jesus made a whip and drove out those who were making his father's house a house of merchandise. The title of our message, Take a Whip Down Merchandise Lane. Let's have, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much this morning for uh, giving us the ability, uh, the freedom, uh, the joy to be here in your presence with your people studying your word. I pray that we would glean everything that you have for us, Lord, that their heart, our hearts would not be distracted, our minds would be attentive, uh, and Lord, that we would leave this place full of joy unspeakable and full of glory. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. On June 12, 1987, President Ronald Reagan challenged the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union to remove the Berlin Wall. Two years and five months later, the wall separating West and East Berlin for 27 years came tumbling down. Jesus said, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He made his declaration in the breathtaking remodel of the second temple in Jerusalem. He was zealous for the purity of the stick and stone structure. Worshippers came there to meet with his father. Merchandisers and money changers were defiling it. The religious leaders questioned Jesus about the tearing down of the temple. They did not know he was speaking of the temple of his body, predicting his flesh and bone resurrection from the dead. You and I are likewise God's temple. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we read, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Your individual body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, we read, You are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The corporate body of believers who comprise the church is the Holy Spirit's temple. So this morning, if you're a believer, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this group, this particular group is a temple to uh, God, a temple of the Holy Spirit, as we are fit together in a way that we don't see, but that's spiritual, that is perfect for God to do his work in and through our lives. Jesus is zealous for you, the temple, not made with hands, we read in Acts chapter 17. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus is zealous to safeguard you. And number two, Jesus is zealous to save you. Let's take a look at his safeguarding us in verses 12 through 22. 
Indiana Jones was seven years old when he saw a whip act in a traveling circus. Later, when he accidentally fell into a wagon transporting a lion, we've all done that, he noticed a lion tamer's whip and grabbed it to fend off the animal. The rest is, as they say, fantasy. Oh, I have to put a note after that. Jesus was an accomplished whipster, or would it be whipper? Really hard to figure out what a person who brandishes a whip is called. He could make a whip from cords and use it whenever the need arose. Little known skills of Jesus would be our next series. Jesus brandishing a whip is totally unexpected. I never picture him that way. So let's take a look. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. The Apostle John provides a few travel notes. Capernaum would serve as Jesus' ministry base. His travel team consisted of his mother and brothers born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus. They were James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. He also had sisters, though their number and names are not recorded in Scripture. Also on the team were five disciples, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Adult male Jews made an effort to attend Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Jesus had been in Jerusalem many times in his life, but not like this. He had been identified as the Messiah by John the Baptist, and he would act like it on this trip. Verse 14, he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Animal sacrifices went on from morning till evening. On Passover, thousands of additional lambs were slain. Lamb after lamb after lamb. Merchandisers sold pre-inspected animals that were guaranteed unblemished, that could be immediately offered without inspection. Male Jews over the age of 20 were also required to pay a temple tax since it had to be paid in the temple annually and in temple coinage, a currency exchange was necessary. The temple money wasn't good anywhere else but in the temple, and yet the tax had to be paid in that coinage, and so your money would need to be exchanged. Now, before we criticize, and we will, let's understand that providing animals was a terrific convenience. Think, for example, of traveling with your sacrificial lamb 80 miles from Capernaum to the temple. A lot could happen to your unblemished animal along the way, rendering it unfit on arrival. I thought you were watching Lammy. No, I thought you were watching Lammy. Where do you think she is? Let's ask that wolf over there. I mean, you're, it would be really tough. There were robbers, there were animals. You're right outside of Jerusalem. You could almost make it and your lamb could fall and break a leg or something. And it had to be a perfect unblemished sacrifice. And so, and 80 miles wasn't even the farthest that people came from. And, and travel was on foot. I mean, it was a dangerous situation to try and get your animal there. You would have no sacrifice. Having animals on hand to purchase is actually a big help. Money changers were equally convenient. I can't tell you what an absolute hassle it was to exchange money on our trips to the Philippines in the 1980s. I almost got arrested one day because the hotel we were staying at wouldn't take my 
Traveler's checks. Who remembers American Express traveler's checks? Don't leave home without them unless you're going to the Philippines. And they sat there and acted like I'd, I've never seen one of these before. Luckily, I was with a young man on our trip who kept me from getting over the top angry. I was, I was, I was about ready to lose it and be jailed. In the, I would have had a jail ministry in the Philippines. I don't know what we find. But every time we went to exchange money, and I'm, to say that I'm no good at math is an understatement. Uh, I, didn't, I could never figure out the conversion rates and the interest, but I know I got ripped off all the time. And so having a money exchange, very important. The issue here was how and where this was being done. The money changers were charging exorbitant rates. They were like store owners who hiked the prices of essential goods in a time of crisis. The sticker price on the animals was sky high. What's it going to take to put you in this lamb today? The money changers and the merchandisers were both doing business in what was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a special place non-Jews could come for prayer. The business being conducted interfered with praying and anything spiritual. Imagine the noise from the animals and all of the money exchanging. And Do any of you do the thing with your coins in your pocket? If you do, I can't stand that. I'm just letting you know. Man, that, you know, did you do that, you know, and you're tinkling the whole time? Tinkling, 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 tinkling. No? Do you know what a coin is? How old are you? Wait. <laughs> Never heard of Apple Pay, Pastor Gene? What's the matter with you? Verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Note that we're never told Jesus whipped anyone, not even animals. He had a whip. He brandished a whip. You've heard the crack of a whip. A whip eight feet long is preferred today if you want to make it crack. But a six-footer will do with practice. The crack of the whip was enough to scatter the animals and have them wreak havoc. If not the crack of the whip, the sight of it would inspire animals to obedience. When I go on walks, I carry a flashlight that is also a million-volt stun baton because I am afraid of all dogs of all sizes, and there are an amazing amount of unleashed dogs around Hanford. And if their owners are out, it makes it worse because they assure me their dog will not bite me. And I've been in that situation too many times with other people, and oh, he... He's never done that before. He's never killed anybody before. Wow, that's, that's, and so I've carried this baton. I haven't had to use it very often because the noise from it enough is enough to scare animals. It has a <laughs> frightens animals and they run. And so uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I have the opposable thumb and so I know what's going on. And so just having a whip would have struck some information in the eyes of an animal. Now, John puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The other gospels have it happening at the end. Most scholars agree Jesus cleansed the temple twice. There's no reason to think that he didn't. Verse 16, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus cracked the whip he overturned tables, and he gave verbal commands 
It was a mini riot. It went unchallenged. Seriously, where was security? And there was a lot of security, especially Passover time at the Jewish temple. Jesus is always the highest authority. No one challenged his authority to drive out the defilers because his father had told him to do it and his hand restrained all those that would oppose him. Now, the Lord has delegated authority to us as Christians and as his church on the earth in his absence. We declare that a man can have his sins forgiven, be born again, and enter heaven and have eternal life. That is real authority. Do you realize, do you realize the, you know, we, that kind of you know, falls off of our tongue as if it was easy to say? But what an amazing concept it is that you and I have this treasure in earthen vessels and that we can assure a person that if they know Jesus, when they pass into eternity, they will be with Jesus, having been born again of his spirit. The Apostle Peter warns believers in the current church age that false ministers will, and I quote, in covetousness with feigned words, make merchandise of you. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. This doesn't mean you cannot buy or sell Christian merchandise or collect offerings. It doesn't mean you can never talk about money uh, or any of those kinds of things. It describes a person who covets money taking advantage of believers as a source of income for furthering their gain and not God's kingdom. Churches should not have the motivations of the unsaved. We should never have the same motivation as the unsaved world, and we must never use the methods of the world in order to accomplish spiritual purposes. We try to abide by the modern proverb where God guides God provides. In other words, we are following God rather than taking the lead and asking him to come behind us. We should not think where I guide, I will manipulate and pressure God's people to provide. I've had, every time I talk about this, people come up to me afterwards and said, yeah, they, the first time I ever took my friend or my mother or my dad or whoever to church the entire service was dedicated to raising money. That's all they talked about is raising money. And of course, my loved one didn't hear the gospel. They didn't know that Jesus died for their sins and rose again. And so, you know, maybe it was okay for a church meeting, but not for, you know, like a member meeting that you had to make a decision, but not for church on Sunday morning. Don McClure told me one time, if you start asking for money, you'll never stop. And it just becomes easier and easier and easier. And so we want to be very careful uh, because sometimes it's not the Lord's leading. Sometimes it's a human leading. We fall into worldly thinking about the church because we're in unredeemed physical bodies. If more people come to your services and you have bigger, more modern facilities, you are seen as successful. I mean, that's just the way it is. You, you, you fight that. You think, well, I shouldn't think that way, but we do. Since success is equated with spirituality, God is blessing you. You must be special to him. Perhaps you are more gifted than other lesser Christians. None of that's true. Numbers and facilities are a matter of God's grace that we cannot fathom. God looks upon the heart in a way we cannot. 
we can discipline ourselves to not judge by outward physical criteria. We're drawn to that, but we can, we can remind ourselves that it's the basis of the heart. Some of the biggest churches in America are places that shouldn't be churches uh, because they're heretics. And so we have to get over this big, you know, kind of thing where bigger and better and more money means God's blessing. It doesn't. I think probably the, the most blessed church in this area is, is a church that you, we don't even know exists that probably meets with just a handful of people that is doing the Lord's work. And so God does whatever work he wants to do. If he wants to bring you 1,000 people, 10,000 people, that's fine. Most churches in the United States are less than 50 people. That's fine too, as long as they have a story and, and a, a leading from the Lord to be churches. And so we have to be very careful about these things. We can be happy and excited about the work God is doing in our church, but not from the point of view that it's comparative. Uh, we just, you know, exist within our own sphere. This is what God is doing, and we're thankful for it. Verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your father's house has eaten me, uh, zeal for your house, excuse me, has eaten me up. Jesus' disciples are criticized for failing to see simple truths. This time they hit a home run. The quote is from Psalm 69, verse 9. It was understood to be a prophecy that zeal for the temple would characterize the Messiah. One of the ways you would know the Messiah is that he would have some kind of amazing zeal for God's earthly temple. And now this fleshed it out. This showed them what that looked like. Verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, and these are leaders of the Jews, what signs do you show us since you do these things? You could paraphrase this. If by your zeal for the temple, you are claiming to be the Messiah, prove it to us by now doing a miracle. Jesus performed a miracle in Cana, turning water into wine. He would perform many miracles, culminating in raising a man from the dead. Lazarus, who had been dead four days, and even his sister said, Lord, I don't know if you realize it, but he stinks by now. Jesus nevertheless rose him from the dead. The Jewish leaders won't believe. With each miracle, they hate Jesus more until they plot his death. Miracles, signs, and wonders followed the believers after Jesus rose from the dead. Miracles, signs, and wonders have not ceased. You must admit, however, that they are fewer and farther between. They are as scarce among Pentecostals and Charismatics as they are among conservatives and cessationists. And often those that are on, well, you know, there, there's two sides to everything or ends of the spectrum, I should say. And the, the super conservative individual says, uh, well, you know, they only did miracles and signs for the first century. And once we got the Bible, you don't need that anymore. And the other side says, no, no, there, you know, miracles ha should happen at every service. Uh, but you, each side has problems because there are miracles and signs in our world today. But at the same time, they're very few and far between. And, you, you know, it tends in the Pentecostal circles, then they start looking at you and think, well, maybe there's something wrong with you. If you've been praying for a miracle and it doesn't happen, there must be something wrong with you. God must be judging you. Well, that's not true. Jesus came to earth and performed the signs the Old Testament said would identify the Messiah. Israel's official rejection of Jesus as their Messiah 
put God's program for Israel on a temporary hold, and it ushered in the mystery of the church age in which we live. The church age is characterized not by signs, but by sufferings. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, Paul, who was used to do miracles and perform healings, doesn't say, I rejoice in the fact that we can all do miracles and that no one needs to be sick and that we can all be healthy and wealthy. He said, my rejoicing is in suffering. He understood his sufferings and ours, those of Christians, were a visible reenactment of the sufferings of Jesus so that people will see the Lord's abounding grace. One commentator said, God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we offer the Christ of the cross to people, they see the Christ of the cross in us. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Why not just say you're going to kill me, but after three days I'll rise from the dead by my own power. It's better for us that we discover spiritual truth through prayer and Bible reading. Jesus is a romantic. He wants you to seek him for answers and insights. Always remember we're working on a living relationship with God uh, not just an academic one or an intellectual one. And so God wants to show you things, but he wants to take you through a process of finding them, like mining them out for yourself so that you get excited, uh, you know, in that relationship. And so he could have been plainer. It was plain to us in hindsight what he was saying, but uh, to them there, they would misunderstand. But, uh, you know, we just need to dig deep so that the Lord can give us the answers and insights we're seeking. Verse 20, then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. God provided Moses with plans to construct a movable tabernacle in the wilderness. Approximately 500 years later, Solomon built a permanent temple from the plans and provisions his father, King David, had left behind. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians when the Jews were taken into a 70-year captivity. The Persians conquered the Babylonians and King Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return to Jerusalem. They did, and over some time, they completed a second temple. Rome was their next oppressor, with Herod ruling them in the time of Jesus. He was a fantastic builder. He remodeled the second temple into the structure we've all seen in mock-ups. The bulk of the construction was completed in 10 years. The decorative work, however, was not finished until 64 AD. Six years later, in 70 AD, the Romans burned and destroyed the temple. Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jesus predicted a third temple would be in operation during the future seven-year Great Tribulation. There will be a temple in Jerusalem during the Millennial Kingdom. The Revelation declares there will be no more temple in the future heavens and earth because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 21 Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was fully man. His physical body was the temple of God, the Holy Spirit, same as us. We are drawn to the indwelling Holy Spirit, empowering Jesus' miraculous works. 
In other words, if the same spirit indwells us, the spirit that rose Christ from the dead, shouldn't we be raising people from the dead and shouldn't we be healing people through our works? Well, there's something first and more fundamental that we like to skip over. As God's temple, Jesus walked in perfect obedience to his father. From womb to tomb, as they say, the Lord never once strayed from the will of God. Not one time did Jesus act independent of his father and use the prerogatives of his deity. Jesus did no miracles for his first 30 years of life on earth. As far as we know, he did nothing supernatural. Certainly no miracles. Last time we were together, we saw that at the wedding of Cana, it was the beginning of signs that Jesus did. And so he, he didn't do anything with the power of the Holy Spirit. It seems like it, not outwardly. But he did, the Bible says, learn obedience. The Holy Spirit empowers our obedience. Sure, he empowers us to lay hands on people and see them healed or whatever he's wanting to do. But he empowers our obedience first and foremost. We ought to value obedience over every comfort, every advantage, every success, every desire over our own health and wealth. For example, I'll use marriage for an example because it hits home. Married believers too often value their personal happiness over their vows before God and obeying his word. And so you know, people are in a, a you know, husband and wife, Christian husband, Christian wife, they're in a marriage, been going on for a few years, uh, maybe a short time, maybe a long time, and one or both of them isn't happy anymore. Uh, and so they you know, begin to be drawn away from the marriage and into other relationships because God wants them to be happy. Uh, now, God is not against happiness. I think sometimes we come across as God wants you as unhappy as possible, uh, you know, because then you really show the world what Jesus is like. You know, you're like baptized in lemon juice or something, you know, and you're all sour. But uh, no, God's not against your happiness, but there's something he values more that is required for real happiness, and that is holiness. People who are not holy, and that means set apart for the Lord and walking with the Lord, will never receive a true happiness because that is all generated by themselves and not by the Lord. And so we must obey the Lord uh, in that sense. And so, uh, it, you know, as a Christian... I should be able to say, you know, let's say in a counseling session, I am unhappy in my marriage, have been for a long time, but I love the Lord. He says, I have no grounds for divorce and he wants me to obey and be holy. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's getting rare. It's getting rare in all spheres of our walk with the Lord, in our marriages, in our other relationships, in our work environment, going to school, whatever it is, uh, we don't want to obey the Lord. We want to work for the Lord, do things, but we're skipping a step. And the Lord says, no, you need to learn obedience and do what I want you to do because only then can you uh, be walking in holiness and have real happiness. So verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Paul Little wrote a book called Know What You Believe. What an interesting title. But it captures this uh, verse perfectly. When you get saved, when you come to Jesus, you don't know 
what you believe. I mean, you believe enough to get saved. You obviously believe that you're a sinner and Jesus is your savior and that there's no other way to God. But you have the whole Bible to explore and figure out how does all that work? What does all that mean? And we never quit learning. We're always learning more about what we believe. Uh, Oh, I never saw that before. Wow, that's impressive. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. You discover what you believe because there's a body of truth that never changes. And we all discover it as we walk with the Lord. Jesus braided a whip and he cleansed the temple. He did it to safeguard the worshipers. Sadly, there are congregations that become spiritually unsafe. You can tell when, as Jesus' dear sheep, you are being fleeced instead of fed. Get out of that environment. You don't need to stay there. Um, If the church is taking advantage of you, coercing you, uh, you know, putting material things over spiritual things, you probably need to get out. Jesus is zealous to save you. Sebastian the crab might say, Jesus was under a lot of pressure down here. Everyone, I was going to do a Jamaican, but it sounds just like all my other accents. Everyone tried to influence Jesus to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness by offering him all the kingdoms of the world. The crowds tried to make him their king before it was time. The disciples continually pressed Jesus to establish the kingdom so that they could have their positions. The kingdom would be nothing without its saved citizens. The cross must come first. And so verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. There is a kind of belief that isn't saving. High-ranking Anglican cleric Dr. John Shepherd said in an Easter sermon in 2008, It is important for Christians to be set free from the idea that the resurrection was an extraordinary physical event, which restored to life Jesus' earthly body. The resurrection of Jesus ought not to be seen in physical terms, but as a new spiritual reality. A survey in 2017 in once Great Britain revealed that 25% of people who describe themselves as Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you cannot be a Christian, a biblical Christian, and not believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet it's popular among many denominations, entire denominations, to deny this and many of the other orthodox foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. I don't care how much you tell me you're a Christian. If Paul says, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable. So just call yourself the denomination of miserable Christians and let people know what is in store for them. Here's a quote that answers that kind of belief. The claim of Jesus' bodily resurrection is central to the gospel message. Without his bodily resurrection, Jesus' claims to divinity would be empty And the gospel's claim to be the power of God for salvation would be false. Now, those are strong words, but they're true. Verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. The Lord would not let anyone, either supernatural or human, deter him from his commitment to his father to die on the cross as the last lamb. He knew all men is explained in verse 25. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. 
One commentator says, Jesus was realistic about the depth of trust in those who were now following him. Some would endure, others would fall away. Jesus was discerning and he knew that the faith of some followers was superficial. Some of the same people who claimed to believe in Jesus at this time would later yell, crucify him. Did Jesus know this because he was God and saw each individual's heart? Well, maybe, but that gives us no example to follow as mere humans. It doesn't help me to learn how to walk with the Lord if he is always using his deity, which I don't have access to. Jesus, as a man, knew what was in man the same way any of us can. We take the word of God for it that every human is born dead in trespasses and sins and has a sin nature. Jesus, of course, the exception, he was virgin born to receive a sinless human nature so he could take our sins upon himself and give us his righteousness. The writer to the Hebrew Christians expresses Jesus' zeal for our salvation. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. You are the joy that was set before him. Your salvation, your conversion, your ongoing sanctification, and ultimately your glorification and spending eternity with him. That is why Jesus went to the cross. He did it for you. In the church age, we read that Jesus has torn down what's called a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. Everyone who is saved becomes a living stone in the temple on earth. We're not tearing down a temple. We'll, we're building a temple. All of us corporately, uh, all Christians from all time, they sometimes call it the universal church or the church universal. Sometimes they call it the Catholic church, and that's, that freaks people out. You, know, these, you read these old uh, commentators, and they talk about the holy Catholic church. They mean the real church, not the Roman Catholic Church, but they use Catholic in a different sense. And so all Christians from all time, beautiful temple, if you see us all put together. Can you imagine what a glorious thing that would be, each living stone in its place? Meantime, as I said in earlier, we are being built together a temple as unto the Lord. And so as we come together uh, and are fit together by the Lord, uh, wonderful things happen in our lives and in the lives of folks around us. Uh, we are a building pleasing to the Lord, and especially as we learn obedience. Uh, the Lord said to obey is better than sacrifice, and he still means that today. So let's just have simple obedience. Uh, we know what to do. We're not in the dark. You know, it's not as if God hasn't told us how to live, how to work, how to act. Uh, we need to learn obedience the way Jesus did and obey in all things God is blessing us. He loves us, you know, and, and it, it's not a matter of, you know, if I obey, he'll bless me more. You know, if we all obeyed the Lord, we would be the biggest church in town with money. You know, we'd be throwing money at people as they're driving by and I'd fly in a jet. I'd just probably have a Ferrari to get me from here to there, you know, that kind of thing. That means nothing. God wants us to obey. Is this my job? Should this be where I am? What should I be doing? My marriage, I'm unhappy. So what? Don't I want to be holy first and happy second? Those kinds of things.